The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or the two brand new U.S. Senators representing the state of Georgia. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 12, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today returning to the show is my guest, Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California, bringing a timeline from her monitoring elections in Arizona last October through to the present for our consideration. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, an attorney currently working as a consultant on community affairs and strategic development with the Public Policy Institute of Santa Monica College. She is the president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California and president of the LA County Commission for Women. In addition, she is an appointee of the California Board of Accountancy and directory of the National Women's Political Caucus, LA Westside Political Action Committee. She comes to us today from her home in West Los Angeles. She was last on this show last September. Now we have us a heavy timeline to review and reflect upon. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines. Thank you very much for having me, Claudia. I was really excited about this opportunity to come back and talk with you. Well, it's I'm the one that's mightily, mightily pleased and appreciative of this. I wanted time stamp today, listeners. We are doing this interview on January 9th. There is so much breaking news that it's essential that I continue to do that. I miss so much that I can't do these shows live. I have to register that as well because of that very situation. So your work began in October, 2020 as a monitor for the election process in Arizona. And one of my people from Ask a Leader, my Ask a Voter show on election day was a couple that went to Tempe. So you were based in a different part of Arizona. And and how long were you there in October? I only went for a weekend after having spent, oh gosh, hours uh, phone banking and text banking into uh, Arizona, not only Arizona, but into Texas and into Nevada and into other states around the country around the November elections. So I knew that I could commit a weekend to some GOTV efforts. And so Arizona was the easiest to get to and was the place that needed the most support. So I got assigned to a few different voting locations in Arizona that I actually didn't go for a weekend. I actually went for several weekdays and monitored early voting in uh, around Phoenix. And what did you observe, Carrie Ann? Well, they were most of the locations that I was assigned to were pretty quiet until the last day. And one thing that was interesting was to hear how different the elections were being framed in Arizona versus here in California. 
when particularly doing things like listening to the local radio stations and the things that the news program, I mean, that the stations, the commercials that were, you know, on the radio stations advertising not only the presidential election, but remembering that, you know, Arizona had a significant senatorial election as well. Uh, Mark Kelly, astronaut Mark Kelly, uh, husband of Gabby Giffords, was uh, challenging Martha McSally, who was the appointed to fill Senator John McCain's Senate seat after he died. So there were, not only was it interesting to hear how the presidential ticket was being advertised, but also the different ways that uh, Mark Kelly's campaign was being advertised. Because here in California, and I think nationally, we were hearing about how progressive he was and how, you know, sort of good of a Democrat he was. But it was interesting that in Arizona, you really didn't necessarily hear the word Democrat used as much as as talking about how he was reflective of the Arizona spirit and culture and things like that. So it just was notable to me Mm -hmm. to be able to be in another state during such a, you know, consequential election with so much energy. Uh, Also, you know, my work focuses really has focused on trying to increase the opportunities for women to be elected. And so I wasn't really following or working on the Kelly to support the Kelly campaign as much, not because I was not supportive of it, but because my focus really was on women, was on women, you know, who are running for office and, you know, focusing on the top of the ticket as, you know, Senator, you know, Kamala Harris was running to be the first you know, woman vice president elected. So that was interesting to kind of, to kind of note. Uh, what was also interesting as I was uh, observing, because I was there as an observer of the Democratic Party, and in each of the locate, voting locations, each party was, major party was allowed to have one observer who was there strictly to watch. Uh, they could not challenge what was happening. They could not talk to voters. Uh, they were really just there to watch and to report on things. They could take and notes. They could take notes. There was a command you know, center of sorts or you know, a boiler room where we could call if we encountered any, we, we observed any abnormalities or any, you know, anything, any voters being intimidated or anything like that. We also could not use our, our cell phones in the voting locations. We could text, uh, but we could not record. We could not talk on the phone if we or wanted take to take pictures the, or take pictures. Exactly. We had to leave the voting location to go, you know, out, and go outside if we wanted to make calls or we needed to, you know, report, talk to someone on the phone. So uh, the first location was a was an elementary school in Phoenix. It was in the city in Phoenix proper, and it was unfortunately it was being overseen by a person who didn't really seem to have good experience and didn't really, his, his, his intentions were good, I think. Uh, and the people who were there, the, the voting clerks who were there helping to you know, facilitate the voting you know, location, I think they were doing 
a good job and the best that they could do under the circumstances. But because of that, uh, there was some, you know, sort of irregularities in how the Republican observer was participating. Uh, a lot of walking around and looking over voters' shoulders what? and talking to clerks. And because there weren't a lot of voters, we just made note of it. And there were actually three of us who were assigned to the voting locations. So what we did is one was inside and then two were outside and then we rotated. And as the day progressed, the Republican observer, uh, she started to become kind of agitated by uh, the increasing number of people who are coming in to vote who, I don't know what, what set her off. I, I'm not sure exactly what set her off, but by the time that we were sort of later in the day, we were assigned to be there from nine to closing, which was I think seven o'clock. By the end of the day, she was you know, really having some challenges to the extent where the observer finally had to kick her out. I mean, the, the clerk. The clerk did. Okay. Yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the Without any prompting from you, not you taking oh, them no, outside. Because, they, had, yes. they, were, they were done with that kind of conduct. Yeah, but it was after having had to consult with the clerk of Maricopa County. And because she just was her, she didn't understand what her observer roles were. So that was the first day. Um, but the voting, it wasn't, there was nothing unusual or, or anything like that, it went fine. Uh, the second day I was assigned to a community college and also in Arizona, uh, in, I mean, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area, but it was, you know, like just north of the city and city proper. And that was an interesting location. I was the only observer. They, uh, the Republican party did not send an observer that day. And what was interesting about that location was that because it was a community college, the rules around mask wearing and things like that were a bit more strict because in order to get to the voting location, you had to come onto the campus and the campus had rules about mask wearing, you know, so you know, because there was this requirement of people having masks on, there were a bit, few more challenges to people who didn't want to wear masks, you know, and coming into the, into the facility to vote. But even where there were some conflicts that occurred, you know, between the person who was running the voting location, which the second location had a much better trained, you know, supervisor who was running the location, they were really well-trained with sort of how to de-escalate conflict <laughs> with, you know, people who came in and, you know, either challenging the mask mandates or, you know, who were coming in wearing paraphernalia that was uh, violated the, you know, the voting laws, because you're not allowed to wear paraphernalia that, you know, would intimidate someone in their voting or anything like that. Uh, so the second day, uh, and the, the community college location had a much larger number of voters who came through. So it was interesting to watch, just to people watch, you know, just to see mm -hmm. people, you know, a range of people. It was different ethnicities 
fairly equal in terms of gender, different approaches, you know, to voting in terms of some people came in, you know, very sort of neutral, like just came in, did their job, got out and left. There were others who came in who were excited, enthusiastic and chatty. And if, if a voter approaches an observer, then the observer can talk to the voter, but the observer can't initiate a conversation with the okay. voter. And in the, so in the second location, I had a couple of people who just engaged, you know, just in conversation, you know, and so that was interesting to experience. Did they uh, want to know also, what your role was there so they could understand how things work at elections? No, because you're, I was not allowed to wear anything that. Right, right, right. But did the voters did. that approached you, did they, were they curious about what you were there for or that so that they kind mm. of have an understanding of how things work? No, generally they were uh, assumed just, that I was one of the clerks, oh, okay. you know, just okay. there helping people vote. So, okay. you know, okay. just talking about voting and, you know, enthusiasm about the election, mm -hmm. you know, or, and things like that. So that was the second day. The third day was definitely my most interesting uh, experience because the third day I was in Glendale. I was assigned to a location that was in a strip mall in Glendale and Glendale is a more conservative area in the Phoenix region. A, a little more blue collar, isn't it, for the Phoenix uh, metropolitan area? Uh, I I don't know. I can't. Okay. I would be speculating to say that, but definitely when the signs were different, like you know, driving in each area, you can kind of get a feel for you know where things are. Like there's a variety of signs, not just for the presidential election, but really for also the local elections because right. they were all having their school board elections and city councils and things like that. So quarters were littered with voting signs and things like that. Driving into Glendale, there was definitely a difference in terms of you know the kind of signs that, we were, that I was seeing. It was like, so it was in a strip mall and the voting location, it, it looked like it was maybe, a, it used to be a restaurant. What also I think was interesting about this is, you know, remembering we were in, we're in the midst of a pandemic. So there was, you know, schools were still limited in terms of how students were, the student attendance, businesses, there were, you know, businesses are closed. Uh, there were going into stores, there were limitations on the number of people that could be in stores and mask mandates and things like that. So it was interesting also just to kind of see how going into Glendale, it had a different approach to even the pandemic. And so the location was a closed restaurant. I think they had just like cleared it out and put in uh, lots of voting stations. It was the largest location that I had been assigned to. I think it had somewhere around 40 voting stations. Oh, that is big. Yeah, it was a huge voting and they were lined up in rows. And in Arizona, they did not have same day voter registration, but you could confirm your voting registration electronically. And so, you know, you would come in and you would double check to make sure you were registered and then you would get your ballot and then your ballot, you would go to a machine that would mark your ballot for you and then your ballot would be put into a box. That was the one day that I had, we experienced voters who were concerned about whether their votes were gonna be marked properly, whether their votes were gonna be counted properly. 
there were several voters who, there was at least one voter who after she voted, she refused to put her ballot into the box because she was worried about what would happen to the ballot between the time that it left the voting lake location and it got to the clerk's office. And she actually watched them spoil her ballot because she wanted to go to the clerk's office and use the voting machine at the clerk's office. Because in the voting, the early voting, voters voted on their ballot, turned it into the ballot box. The ballot boxes were then transmitted to the clerk's office and then the clerk's office counted them. On election day, your ballot is immediately counted. And so there were a few people who on that, that last location I was at who were really skeptical and questioning of a concern about the security of their ballot. And now in hindsight, that should have been, uh, you know, that was a, a red flag yep. for a right. lot of us about what we were going to experience because I think we underestimated the impact that all of that, the sowing of that skepticism would have on the election. And, you know, here we are now where Arizona became one of the main flashpoints around, you know, the challenge to the validity of the election. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that voting location for me now in hindsight was a marker, an indicator of what we were going to be facing. And, you know, and I've waited to say, you know, till afterwards that, you know, it was a location where there were a lot of open Trump supporters. Arizona is an open carry state. There were a couple of people who came into the, they were prohibited from showing their weapons, but the clerks at the voting location were not enforcing the rule where people were not you know, creating any kind of problems. So there were people who came in with guns, people who came in wearing their voting paraphernalia, you know, indicating who they were supporting. Uh, Several people came in without, you know, not wearing masks. There were a couple of challenges, you know, confrontations, you know, between folks outside of the voting location about the mask wearing, nothing big or anything like that. There were actually two of two observers from the Democratic Party, no observers from the Republican Party. Okay, I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the two of us, uh, the other observer was also from LA, from California. And we switched off sitting inside and, you know, sitting outside. And it was interesting to watch. And it was an, some insight into how different it was. My goodness, uh, Carrie Ann, the Maricopa County in Arizona was the composite of the U.S. that you yes. visited in all three different locations of that county. Amazing. It was. It was. Well, it's a it good was. thing we have you on the show. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Is there more you want to say? Because we have a lot to cover. No, no, I, I, I think it was, you're right. That's a great way of putting it. It was a, it was a composite of exactly what we're experiencing right now. Turnout, a reflection of turnout, a reflection of of where voters' minds were about this election. No, I think that's a good way of putting it. So then the exact dates in October you were there and that the early voting started and ended before the election. But what days in October? Just I was there, I was there from the 28th through the 30th. Okay. 
So I was there three days. Uh, so in-person voting ended on the 30th. And then they had something called like emergency in-person voting hmm. on, I think, the 31st and maybe the 1st also. I think it was for people who needed to cure issues or, you know, whose voter registration was needed some follow-up or a buffer Something after like the last day of in-person voting. So exactly, exactly. Okay, I see. And then election day, was, you know, and then there was election day. And, you know, when they had, you know, major turnout. And I unfortunately wasn't able in a position where I could be in Arizona on election day. Well, and I also, I didn't want to. I wanted to be home. Right. Because uh, again, we were still in a pandemic. And I flew there and I flew home. And there's all the sort of anxiety of the travel. Right. under the circumstances, oh, which was uneventful, but still. You know. Right. You don't know that till you've got your 12 days after travel to, to right. look back on. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest for the full hour is Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, an attorney working as a consultant for the Public Policy Institute of Santa Monica College. She's president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California. And she's also president of the LA County Commission for Women. So she's talking about her observing elections in Arizona prior to the November 3rd, 2020 election. So let's move now into a general electoral picture. You mentioned in your earlier responses today that what National Women's Political Caucus is about is advancing women in elective office. So I'm going to talk something very specifically about the efforts that the National Women's Political Caucus has been involved with. There is the She the People that had been organizing so strategically for the last two years, I'm guessing, if not longer. And then some of the other organizations, Stacey Abrams people that have been organizing for the last 10 years. It's not just for women, it's for it's just to raise the level of voting. But I want to talk to you about the results that came out of the election November 3rd. We can talk about California's congressional races or maybe other in other states. I'm most familiar with the ones in Southern California where there were some women of color that did defeat incumbents, but that's not the whole picture. And I'm getting pretty hot under my collar about the lack of understanding of uh, Adam Nagorny with the New York Times and other people are, they're taking this at a good 75,000 foot view over what happened in the ground with some very dicey kinds of dynamics. So I'd like for you to talk about those women of color, how they won and the kind of coverage they're getting and how astute is that coverage? That's a big mouthful, but if you could please carry on. Well, I would say there's the women of color, but there's also women uh, more generally who ended up winning. I mean, I think there is there are folks who are touting that there's been some advancement in the number of women who are in serving in elected office. Uh, you know, you look at the Center for American Women in Politics, and they very accurately report that we've actually seen an increase in the number of women who are serving in Congress and, you know, after this November election. Uh, however, when you get, you know, who was running and what their sort of positions are and who they represent, you know, there, like you said, there's more to the picture than, than what appears. 
And we did not experience the kinds of successes, we meaning National Women's Political Caucus and other organizations like ours who focus on promoting women who are, are pro-choice, who support women's reproductive freedom, who support uh, progressive policies, who, pr- who support gender equity policies, who support racial equality and addressing, you know, systemic, you know, injustice that exists, you know. And, and voting participation, you could easily say. And, not, and, and the counterparts in the Republican Party aren't so interested in that broader turnout as a, a goal. Okay. Right, right, right. And so we, we were unfortunately really disappointed in to see so many of our, uh, our women who were unsuccessful. We supported women at the national level, everywhere from, you know, Maine, Sarah Gideon, who was challenging Susan Collins, to uh, places like uh, Texas, where we had uh, MJ Hager, who was challenging John Cornyn for, you know, for Senate, uh, also to uh, Georgia and Iowa was a really big disappointment mm. in, you know, where we saw Teresa Greenfield lose her challenge to uh, Senator Joni Ernst. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there were not as many women of color who were running for Senate. Uh, we had one woman running in Tennessee uh, who, you know, unfortunately was unsuccessful, who we supported. But, you know, it was really in the congressional races where we were supporting a really broad, diverse coalition of women. And unfortunately saw them, some of our incumbents lost and uh, some of our challengers were not successful. I mean, some of the places where we were really disappointed is, is in Texas, where we saw women like Gina Ortiz Jones, who, was, uh, who had mounted a really uh, impressive campaign against Congressman William Hurd in 2018, uh, and who was really poised to take the seat because she lost by, I want to say, maybe less, less than a thousand votes in 2018. And so she really had great momentum and was poised to really take that seat only to lose. And William Hurd resigned. He decided not to run again. And, uh, you know, Ortiz Jones lost to a uh, Latina. And, you know, similar, you know, situation in Texas, you know, and also in Texas where we had Candace Valenzuela who mounted a challenge and uh, she ended up losing that challenge well. Uh, Here in California, you mentioned that there were some races, um, you know, here that sort of reflected that we had Michelle Steele who, you know, won in the 48th, yeah, who won her challenge against uh, Harley Ruda. And there is a lot of celebration in that uh, she's Asian American and you know, Asian American Pacific Islander representation in Congress and in elected office is not reflective of their, they're not representative of their voices in you know, general population. So while there's something to be celebrated in her being a, a woman of color, you know, representing an underrepresented group in Congress, I think once we start looking at what kind of policies she would support and what kind of legislation she would support, we really have to be concerned that 
you know, she is not going to be representative of, you know, women's rights and women's reproductive freedom. And, you know, there are a lot of conversations that we're having in women's groups about, you know, how do we um, reconcile this desire to have diversity of gender in elected offices and then what happens when it does not produce uh, legislators who are going to be to, who are going to promote a pro-woman agenda you know what we what we like to call a pro-woman agenda you know which includes things like focus on equal pay focus on you know reproductive you know health uh, inequities addressing reproductive health inequities uh, health inequities in general um, you know, addressing, uh, you know, racial injustice, racial inequality, discrimination, gender discrimination, that's not their priority. And so we're having conversations about what does it mean and how do we frame this? How do we approach, you know, talking about this? Because it's not going to be for our benefit, the results that, that have come out of November. Well, I'm glad that we could uh, look at that because it's the coverage has been lazy, <laughs> I think. And there, there is so much that people who were working on the ground could have contributed to really good analysis and it's, it's not happening. And I'm, I'm going to just note for people who maybe aren't watching this to the granular detail that Carrie Ann and, and my, to some extent I am, that so far Michelle Steele's activity when she's not warding off her positive COVID test, she's lobbing arrows at the executive office of California. So it's bizarre at this point. And so we, we all need to be very attentive to what she's doing. She was not on the vote when we get to January 6th um, for the uh, electoral challenge of the Biden-Harris um, ticket. So, so if you could speak a little bit briefly here about the results, what the lessons were learned some political organizations got the memo right away, even actually before the election and some not so much. So all the investment that organizations like Be A Hero that Adi Barkin is associated with, they brought in a lot of money for Senate races, but it, there was blowback on that. There was common power, and I've interviewed some of their representatives who did not bring an agenda to campaigns, they brought personnel. So I don't know if National Women's Political Caucus over all of the chapters in the country have a, had a very tough conversation about how best to get interjected into campaigns in other states. Uh, you know, I can't speak to what's happening in other states, but I can talk about what's happening here in California because what happened because the same thing happened in California, you know, our caucus uh, focuses on supporting women who are running for the state legislature. And while we endorsed a, an unprecedented number of women in this election cycle who were, you know, challenging incumbents, we unfortunately did not see the kind of success that to match the investment of money and woman power that we expected. We were able to protect uh, many of our incumbents, uh, but unfortunately where we 
endorsed uh, eight women for the state Senate, only two won and one of those was an incumbent. And we endorsed 21 candidates for the assembly and uh, 14 won and many of those were incumbents. So we are really having some tough conversations about, you know, what, how do you uh, break through when you have incumbents in serving in office and the power of that I behind a legislator's name is so impactful. We, even though we are, there's Which is incumbent, that, not independent. Exactly, <laughs> just to, yes, yes. Just yes, in yes, case some it's a little are, I. It's a yeah, little I, exactly. Right. A little I that it means incumbent. Yes, it's not an indication of their political, Danny. It's not an indication of their record. And when we have record turnout at a time when we had vote by mail, uh, which really opened up voting to a much broader population, uh, which is to uh, which we believe is to our benefit. Uh, we did not see the kind of change that we expected. Now, one thing we have not talked about as much is the impact of, of the COVID pandemic. And although I talked about it, about the differences I saw in terms of, uh, you know, how different the mm -hmm. protocols and things like that, it had a significant impact on campaigning. And there were definitely races that we were participating in in the state in in California and and you know I know of anecdotally in other states where the candidates that we endorsed were you know following protocols not campaigning in person you know doing virtual events not going door to door you know being really really cautious and the incumbents or their opponents were not they were going door to door they were holding in-person events, rallies and fundraisers and things like that. Uh, they were participating in in-person forums, you know, which even the planning, if you were, if you plan a candidate forum for people to attend in person, that in and of itself said something about what your position was on the pandemic, right. you know, uh, and if you expected that others were going to show up, you kind of, uh, you already knew it was leaning towards a certain mindset. And I think that a lot of the candidates, you know, there was some misaccount, I won't say a lot of the candidates, there was definitely some miscalculation about how that would affect uh, turnout, how that would affect how voters thought of independents. I mean, I'm sorry, how voters thought of incumbents. And, you know, we unfortunately learned it on election day, you know, and, and in the days after, as the vote tally started coming in. Well, I so, think some, some of the partisans, the, the same kind of selection was going on, that a similar kind of label was associated with which party was willing to campaign, canvas door to door. More Republicans right. were canvassing door to door, and many Democrats were not. Exactly. And while on the surface, it looks as though it's a Republican versus a Democrat issue. It looks very partisan. It, it was much more complex than that. It oh. was also representative of, of how people viewed the pandemic, how people viewed right. how the pandemic was being managed, how people viewed the severity, what they're, they're you know, similar to whether they believed in, you know, the votes and the credibility of the and integrity of voting, 
the same kind of suspicions and cynicism existed about the pandemic. And it, it became more than just a partisan divide. It became it was a brand. pandemic divide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So so that's something which hopefully won't, have, won't exist again. You know, so as we're asking ourselves these these questions and we're doing a lot of, of you know, Monday morning quarterbacking and reflecting on what happened and how we could, you know, we could do better as we look forward to 2022 when we're going to have all of these congressional seats up again and a number of the state legislative seats are going to be up for election. You know, hopefully we're not going to have this situation again, but we do need to take away from it an understanding of where people's minds are and how to talk to people and how to really spread our message and, and how to connect with voters. Well, uh, I, I think it's a valiant, I think a valued exercise though, to be ready for a public health, another public health disruption of the electoral process. As I listen to public health professionals, we're in for some more big storms in the public way, the public health way. So it's a good one to consider. So I'm sorry, you were going to say something else, Karen, before I ask about our next topic. Uh, I will, I will just add, um, there were some bright spots. And I, you know, it's so easy to for them to be overshadowed, but I want to lift them up. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is one of our biggest accomplishments in you know the history of women's equality to have broken that penultimate glass ceiling is something to be celebrated that it was broken by a, a black woman a woman of you know Asian American descent uh, you know who was from California from one of the largest states in the country you know from you know the western part of the country at this time is something to to not be missed that she hailed from a historically bad college, you know, and also from a law school that was Western based. I mean, these are all little indicia that are not insignificant. So uh, we really celebrate that accomplishment. There are so many people that work so hard to get us to this point particularly to get her to for her to be the person that accomplished that goal. So we, you know, really want to put uh, make sure that we don't lose sight of and that we continue to celebrate that even as we are looking back at, you know, what happened and how we can make further advancements. A local accomplishment is here in LA County. Yes. We've talked about this before. Right. But, uh, Holly Mitchell. Holly, Holly Mitchell, Senator Holly Mitchell was elected as uh, onto the LA County Board of Supervisors, one of the most powerful municipal boards in the country. Uh, that board is now led by five women. And while the assumption is that we're excited about having five women, uh, I think it's it's always important to note, and Supervisor Mitchell has commented on this when she's talked about this and she's asked about, you know, what's it like to have five women? It's not just that there are five women on that board. They are five remarkable women. Each of them has a different area of specialty and expertise. They bring a breadth of experience and perspective that I have no doubt is going to be transformative for LA County and then 
and that is going to trickle down into the cities that are in the county. And I think also it will have an impact on the state, uh, on state leadership as well. Uh, also, it's notable that uh, several of the women who are supervisors are really strong mentors to other leaders. They really focus on building up the pipeline of leadership, particularly women. And so I, I'm personally enthusiastic about what it's going to mean to have those five women there and, you know, that they are leading us through this, this, these, you know, this pandemic and other challenges, the economic crisis. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's to be celebrated and there's, uh, there's a lot of good that can come out of it, uh, both in the short term, but especially in the long term, as well as in the long term. And so saving another show for you about where that, how that whole board of supervisors, how that performs and the kind of farm team, both for mentoring and for, for their own political careers. We are going to do another show about that, Karen. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm going to keep moving us on a, a rapid clip, but just reminding sure. people for the full hour, my guest is Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines. She's a legal consultant to the Public Policy Institute of Santa Monica. She's the president of the National Women's Caucus of California, as you're hearing in her answers. So you mentioned that Kamala Harris now has succeeded in becoming elected as the vice president of the United States. That created a vacancy for the California US Senate. And so Alex Padilla, that then sitting Secretary of State was eventually appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom and Shirley Weaver was appointed to replace Alex Padilla as Secretary of State. There were so many parlors, so many organizations and halls that were covering who should be the anointed appointed Senator to fill out the two remaining years of Kamala Harris's term. So what is, your complete take on that? Uh, well, we're extremely disappointed about, uh, about it. Uh, we did submit a letter to the governor's office uh, expressing our expectation that, the, that Governor Newsom would uh, appoint another woman, uh, particularly a, a black woman or a woman of color to fill that seat. Uh, we joined a coalition of groups, both women's groups as well as groups representing a broad coalition of groups that call, were calling on Governor Newsom to fulfill the will of the people in electing uh, Senator Harris to the Senate seat back in uh, 2016. We really, we strongly believed that it was uh, going to be more reflective and respectful of the electorate had Governor Newsom uh, appointed a, a black woman to the seat. It should not be lost that when uh, you know Senator Harris was elected in 2016, she won over a Latina, and the two of them, you know, became were the top two vote getters in that election. And there that was were Loretta other Sanchez from Loretta here. Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez. Yes, yes. Another, you know, exceptional uh, leader in her own right. And, you know, so to have a seat that the California voters intentionally picked a black woman, you know, a woman of Asian American descent who had been, you know, attorney general, 
and for the seat to go to a man who, you know, it's not reflective at all on uh, Secretary Padilla's experience or qualification. That's not what our, you know, protest was about. It really was about making sure that we did not lose a representative voice in the Senate. Uh, well, and that California did not lose a representative voice in the Senate. And so, and you the know, U.S., there is none yes, in the there Senate is, right now. There, there is not a Black woman in the U.S. Senate. And there is one less woman of color in the U.S. Senate. And that's not even looking at uh, the committees, the important committees that Senator Harris served on, Vice President-elect Harris served on in the Senate as well. So we were extremely disappointed. I will say, I appreciate, I'll say this personally, I appreciate, you know, Governor Newsom's attempt to, you know, assuage some of that disappointment by immediately naming Assemblywoman Shirley Weber to fill Secretary Padilla's seat, you know, once he is able to take the seat in the Senate. Uh, Assemblywoman Weber, another, you know, a a legislator who NWPC has, you know, supported in the past, is notable in her own right. You know, her focus on, her stated focus now on prioritizing civic education and focusing on, you know, her educational background, focusing on, you know, young voters and, you know, raising up young and educating young voters is really commendable. Um, It does not lessen the sting, though, of losing that Senate seat. And it will be very hard. Looking at the political landscape here in California, it will be very hard to, for women to make their way into a Senate, that Senate seat again. Uh, So that's just the, the reality of it. So, and that's it. Uh, so is the National Women's Political Caucus, here's a scoop for Ask a Leader. Are you already going to draft somebody to run in four years? That's the I, next, there's yeah. two years from now and there's four years <laughs> from now. Yeah. When uh, Diane Feinstein, I can't imagine she will run anymore after this, she, her remaining four years are up. We are already, uh, we're already looking at the bench for uh, Senator Feinstein's seat uh, I can't say, you know, what our strategy will be for, for 2022 when then Secretary Padilla will be running for re-election. Uh, but we definitely are looking at, uh, we have looked at secession for Senator Feinstein when she makes a decision about her, her continued Senate career. Uh, so we have expressed uh, some you know, concern about positions that she has taken, you know, particularly over the last, you know, few years. But the reality is that over the course of her, her legislative career, Senator Feinstein has been an incredible ally, uh, you know, on our issues. So it's unfortunate that we're in this situation where we are, you know, quite concerned about her representation uh, on our issues at this time. But, you know, looking at her career as a whole, she has been, you know, an incredible uh, leader, you know, for women's rights and women's equality. So let me pivot to the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff where there were two seats to be challenged. So was the National Women's Political Caucus involved with any of the organizing inside of Georgia for that runoff? Well, no, because there wasn't a woman 
running who we endorsed. You okay. Know, so, okay. There you know, you are. so yeah, Senator but, Loeffler did not get our endorsement. She did not seek our endorsement and nor could she earn our endorsement because she's not pro-choice and, you know, she's okay. not pro our position. There are people who personally did a lot of work in our groups that did a lot of work to support the two candidates, Ossoff and, and Warnock, Warnock mm-hmm. yeah, in their challenges. And you know, where I think we helped, a lot of women's groups helped though, was in supporting uh, Stacey Abrams and women like Stacey Abrams and Natasha Brown with Black Voters Matter in their organizing efforts. Because although groups like ours only endorse women for elected office, we do support the engagement of women in political leadership and leading organizations that increased voter turnout, voter education, voter engagement, that is being involved in political life. That is an important role in the engagement in, poli- in, in public life. I mean, if we look at the history of you know, women's engagement in politics, women have always been at the forefront of educating people on the issues and working for candidates and raising money and turning out the vote. And Georgia was just another example of where women particularly Black women. You know, we saw that across the country, but, you know, we really saw it in Georgia where women take the lead on change, on making sure that change happens. And so we did support women who were running for Congress in Georgia. Lucy McBeth, Congresswoman Lucy McBeth, who won re-election. Also, Congresswoman Woman Nakima Williams, who ran and won to fill John Lewis's seat in around Atlanta, uh, who Congresswoman Williams was also uh, the lead, leader of the Georgia Democratic Party for many years now, and was one of the architects around helping to change the demographics, the voter demographics in Georgia. She was one of the architects along with Stacey Abrams and, you know, women like Latasha Brown, who, who were saying, we can flip Georgia and we're doing the hard work on the ground. And she was a state legislator. She was the head of the Democratic Party in Georgia. And then she won her election. And then she turned around and continued to help with making sure that those two seats flipped in the special elections that were just held. Uh, so while we, we were not directly involved in the Senate races, we were very involved with supporting the women leaders who were on the ground, who were helping to make sure that that election turned out well for us. So in that respect, I don't know if you had noticed in the conversation, because both you and I follow each other on Twitter and you are on also other platforms, but some people were uh, asking out loud on Twitter, will Stacey Abrams move her organization to Texas? So I, I'm sure you saw those queries. Yeah, yeah, I, I have <laughs> seen it. Um, well, and, or at least will people who are on the ground in Texas take her advice and her counsel? Uh, because I do think that there are uh, groups on the ground in Texas. I'll say personally, you know, anecdotally, I heard concerns and criticisms about the way that organizing was going in Texas and that it was not, uh, that it needed to emulate more the kind of work that was being done in Georgia to reach out to black and brown voters 
and uh, Asian, you know, yeah, Asian voters. American voters, indigenous voters, yeah, voters of color. And that kind of work wasn't being done in Texas. And, you know, maybe now the message will be heard that in order for you to flip the states, you're going to have to invest in invest in talking to voters who are of color. The demographics are changing and the campaigning uh, in voter engagement needs to change as well. So the last topic for our conversation, there's a series of questions, of course, within it, is January 6, 2021. That was the day after the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff when mm-hmm. some, some people had hoped that there could be reflection devoted to that colossal success in Georgia, but it turned into a different kind of day totally. And I would like for you, I want to frame the question in your reflecting on the, the takeover of the U.S. House of Representatives, the Capitol building, how fragile, Carrie Ann, is our democracy? Or um, it did come very, very close to a complete collapse. So Carrie Ann, how fragile is our democracy as we try to fully, fully understand and appreciate what took place in Washington DC this last Wednesday? We can look to the words that Speaker Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, you know, has frequently quoted from Benjamin Franklin that we have a republic if we can keep it. Uh, I, I think when she says that, it expresses her confidence and, you know, both optimism and confidence that we can see a way through this, but it's going to require leaders, leadership that is very intentional and responsible about the direction that we go in. I think that it's been notable that uh, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have not taken front and center about the direction in which we should go after what happened on January 6th and and I I say what happened because it's very hard to not use the most the, the most extreme language in describing what it's happened. It's very hard, Carrie Ann. It's incredibly yeah. hard. It's 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 a challenge in and uh and to to stay constructive and and focused in, in discussing it. But there was an attempt to overthrow our government that occurred on January 6th. And the depths of it, we're still learning. And at best, it was, you know, um, people who went too far, who misunderestimated, you know, the, the, you know, the depths of enmity that existed in people about our country and about one another. But at worst, it's sounding like it was a coordinated, calculated effort, you know, at insurrection. And we're still learning and uh, discovering what happened. But I am optimistic that we have leaders who want us and who are really focused and dedicated to us moving forward and protecting this democracy and continuing with the work. I watched as some were uh, critical of the fact that the Congress went, you know, went right back into session and continued with the vote. 
because there's a sense of maybe normalizing what happened and not giving it full credit. But I think they didn't really have a choice. We needed to see the work continue because if they had stopped, I think that would have emboldened people further and given them the impression that, that they were successful. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad to know that they were not, that it requires more to destroy our democracy than what they did. They did a lot on January 6th, a lot happened, and but it survived. It has survived that. And so there's some optimism there about what we can accomplish. And so whether or not we proceed, they proceed with impeachment or whether the, what the consequences are of this, you know, I have my personal opinions, but I think it's notable that there's a woman who's, you know, leading that effort in Speaker Pelosi. And I'm confident that once we get to January 20th and we have the inauguration of new leadership, that it can, you know, send us in a direction where, you know, hopefully we can put into place some more guardrails to further strengthen our democracy against something like this ever happening again. But not just that, but that we can also move in a direction of growth and further change. Maybe this is the setback that we needed in order to take several steps forward. So I'm trying to keep on optimism about it, even while calling for there to be uh, some real uh, consequences and reckoning for the folks that participated in it. Well, thank you for that upbeat rap. Karen, I thank you for your time and for letting me know in advance today was something that needed doing and in your inestimably qualified way, you were able to do it. Thanks again. Thank you again for having me. And I look forward to having another opportunity to come and talk with you, Claudia. I'm looking forward to it already. My guest was Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, an attorney currently working as a consultant on community affairs and strategic development with the Public Policy Institute, Santa Monica College. She is the president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California and president of the Los Angeles County Commission for Women. Well, that was my wrap. For the next week's show, I'm putting together voices weighing in in advance of a historic presidential inauguration. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks, they'll look great on the Capitol Mall. They'll look great on your sidewalk. 